So, as with all great doctrines of the church, there have been misunderstandings, misuses, and heresies related to the second coming. For instance, many people today who call themselves Christians don't believe in the basic biblical teachings about the nature of God or the atonement or the virgin birth. Many disbelieve that what God has said about his plan to save the world. But there's no major doctrine of all of the faith that even comes close to having the volume of false teachings that surround the second coming. Of course there are heresies around all kinds of doctrines, but nothing even comes close. So let me give you some, some, uh, some starts here. And uh, hope, I imagine you're intrigued by uh, tonight's title. Uh, listen to this. The prophet, John Hinkle. The platform, Trinity Broadcasting Network, or TBN. The prophecy, the most cataclysmic experience that the world has ever known since the resurrection, is going to happen. Hinkle had his listeners' attention. He claimed that God, in the most awesome voice, had told him, On Thursday, June the 9th, I will rip the evil out of this world. In his May 1994 newsletter, TBN President Paul Crouch elaborated on Hinkle's pronouncement. The voice, said Crouch, was so loud and clear that it sounded like a great bell had rung in his ear. Four days before the apocalyptic event was to take place, Hinkle assured the parishioners, the glory of the Lord is coming upon everyone in this world in such a way that they will see it outside, but 10,000 times more they will feel it inside. As thousands waited anxiously for the great day to arrive, Crouch assured his vast television audience John has promised to be our special guest on June 9th, 1994. That is, if we have not already been lifted to meet the Lord in the air. Hinkle was a no-show on June 9th, and unfortunately, so was the cataclysmic experience. Neither Crouch nor the pastor he had made famous apologized for the false prophecy. Instead, they employed a tactic that had worked for the Jehovah's Witnesses in the Watchtower Society for 80 years. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses who had predicted that Christ would return in 1990, excuse me, 1914, they proclaimed that their prophecy had come to pass just invisibly. Crouch had already hedged his bets on June 2nd. He declared, something may happen invisibly. For his part, Hinkle waited for June 9th to come and go. Then he sent his congregation the following communique. At first, myself and others were very disappointed that this did not take place the way we expected. It did begin, and it is continuing to take place, but it happened in the spiritual realm first. Prophetic announcements like Hinkle's are no longer rare. They become all too common. A growing cacophony of voices now claim to have discovered the date of Christ's return. These stories, and I could read many more, and over the next few weeks I definitely will, these stories are, uh, are uh, why I provocatively titled tonight, Alert, I'm Predicting the Day When Christ Will Return. That, of course, is not my promise or my statement, but that is actually what many have said all through the ages, and many, uh, as we'll see, of the headlines have been things just like that. I wouldn't be surprised if someone who watched this session will be doing so just to see what date I was going to pick. But as you'll see, <laughs> we're going to do something very different. We're going to actually look at many of the previous and current date setters and show 
why they are false teachers and why, at best, their announcements are heresy and, at worst, their predictions are literally dangerous. As we begin, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. That's where we'll go next in the text. As we begin, we need to expose the fact that Christians from around the world have repeatedly ignored the explicit teachings of Scripture and of Christ himself. So let's start with the direct teaching uh, from Jesus from, again, Mark chapter 13. Look with me at verse 28. Verse 28, Mark chapter 13. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. You're familiar with this from our, we've been in the Matthew 24 version of this uh, many times. When its branches have already, talking about Israel, of course, coming back as a nation, when its branches become already tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happen, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Having just made that amazing statement, my words will not pass away, look at the very next thing he says. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, the church has always been fascinated with the future. And this fascination has often culminated in a desperate desire to know the exact time when Jesus will return to the earth to set up his kingdom. In fact, you may not have noticed this before, but the book of Acts opens with this very issue, despite the fact that the apostles had already actually been on the Mount of Olives when Jesus taught and preached the words that we just read from the Gospel of Mark. And he had preached this just a couple of months before in their very presence. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Look with me at verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you had heard it from me. This is amazing. Look at this announcement. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now think of what an enormous, historic, long-awaited promise Jesus had just announced was going to happen in their presence. This was the fulfillment of the much-anticipated prophecy from Joel chapter 2, where the prophet Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. This was an announcement of gigantic proportions. And they were going to get to be the ones who experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the world. And so you'd expect that they would have all kinds of questions to ask about this enormous coming event. And that's what makes the next verse so astounding and telling. Look at verse 6. And so, when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Look, they want to know when the day of the Lord's going to be. And look at his rebuke. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice their question. Is it at this time? Is it at this time? They were completely distracted from hearing Christ tell them of the coming of Pentecost because they were so focused on knowing when the day of the Lord was going to come. And this question 
Is it at this time? Has been the perennial question of many believers ever since and all throughout the history of the church. So why are we so fascinated with the future? I've uh, got at least several of the reasons here. Write it in. Number one, here's your first blanks. Number one, God has given us the capacity to think about the future. It's, it's a gift from him. As far as we can tell, this is one of the things that makes us different and distinct from the animals. All the research makes it look like even the higher animals continuously live in the moment. If you will, from a philosophical perspective, animals are existentialists. They just live in the moment. We, on the other hand, can talk about tomorrow and next year. We can actually plan. We can think about the future. But in the same arena of trying to figure out when this is going to, uh, Jesus is going to turn, we're misusing God's blessing of giving us the capacity to ponder future events. Right? He's blessed us with the ability to think about the future and question and ponder about the future. But this interest, this over-interest when it presses too far, forces us into these kinds of mistakes. Number two, why are we so fascinated with the future? Here's your blanks. One of our most desperate desires, one of our most desperate desires is to control the future. This explains why billions of dollars are spent on fortune tellers, tarot cards, palm readers, astrologers, soothsayers, and horoscopes. But it's also why so many of us struggle with wanting God's will and God's plan in our future. We want to plan our future, and often we struggle with God's plan for how we're going to live in our future. And this is exactly why God has constrained us within time. It's why he's given only us a small snapshot of what the future holds. And this means that if we come to grips with the fact that we don't have control and we won't have control, then we're finally in a position where the only logical response is to place ourselves and our lives and our future entirely to in, into his hands. Notice why He's given us the gift of thinking about the future, but he has constrained us within time so that it's impossible for us to know the future except what God has said will happen. And he does that so that we will place ourselves into his plans. So we don't have control, but the one who's already living in our future has a flawless plan for us. And eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has in store for those who seek him and know him and follow him and love him. So we love thinking about the future and we want to control the future, but we can't. So humans are fascinated by this. In fact, we're fascinated about the future, not just about the return of Christ, but about all kinds of things, right? About in general, most of us think that, and we worry about the future a lot. But why are so many people fascinated with knowing when Christ will return? Here's number one. This is in your blanks. Why are so many people fascinated with knowing when Christ will return? Here, here you go. The, the word, number one, the word has told us just enough about Christ's return for us to be captivated by a desire to know when. The word has told us just enough about Christ's return for us to be captivated by a desire to know when. Remarkably, when someone predicts the second coming, even the secular media shows up. Let me give you... An example, uh, this was 
1998. And it's a, as you can see, it's a, a, newspaper, uh, a newspaper article. And here's the title. God's a no-show, but the media are there waiting. And the subtitle, Non-Event in Texas Gets Its Time in the Sun. Listen to this. Garland, Texas. The TV trucks and legions of reporters showed up early for who could resist the promises of the sun vanishing forever and God taking to the airwaves. The city issued its own media guide to Judgment Day. Portable toilets, ample parking, and in case no deity showed up, directions to the International House of Pancakes. When the Taiwanese leader of God's Salvation Church finally had to acknowledge that nothing had happened, he offered an ingenious face saver. The Lord has sent all these reporters to this quiet Dallas suburb to spread his word across the earth. You, Chen Hongming, uh, Hong Hong told a battalion of cameras, you are proof of what we believe. Only God could bring us so much attention. The local government planned the event like a rock concert. This, according to Robert Thompson, a professor of television at Syracuse University, this was the ultimate pseudo-event. The implication is that if God were to come back, the first thing he would do is head for a media outlet to get his message across. The attention had other causes. The no notion of Taiwanese people in white clothes and white cowboy hats speaking Chinese on the streets of the town that inspired the song King of the Hill is a draw in and of itself. And then with all the X-Files mentality in the air, because it was just about to turn to the new millennium, this sort of thing fits right in and the media loved it. Most people conceived of just two possible outcomes. One, God doesn't come and the group looks silly. Or two, God doesn't come and someone commits suicide. But a third option prevailed. God didn't come and the prophet got worldwide attention. So, number two, why are, we, are so many people fascinated with knowing when, church will, when Christ will return? Number two, people love to be on the inside of secrets. We've all experienced the pain of being excluded from the inner circle. We've all also known about being in the know on something really juicy, and we love it. So it's no surprise that a boatload of us would like to be in the know about the biggest secret of all, when the world is going to end. Number three, why are so many people fascinated with knowing when Christ will return? Number three, here's your blanks. With all the suffering in the world and evil advancing on every front, we really want Christ to come in glorious victory. We really want Christ to come in glorious victory so the enemy and his forces will finally be completely defeated. Number four, why are so many people fascinated with knowing when Christ will return? Here's your blanks. Because prophecy plays a very prominent role in Scripture. Now, some scholars believe that prophecy makes up at least indirectly 30% of the Old Testament and as much as 25% of the whole Scripture. Only the doctrines of the nature of God and of salvation have more biblical volume supporting them than the doctrine of the second coming. So, 
We can't sweep such an enormous topic under the rug of doctrinal insignificance. We, we can't just pass off the fact that thousands of biblical verses teach of a future coming of the day of the Lord in which the world as we know it will end. This is why Christians are in, inherently future-minded. It's our blessed hope. It's coming in the future. However, being future-minded is entirely different than date setting. So, I want us to look, as we start this series, I want us to look at the fundamental reasons for date setting. Reason number one, here's your blank, I'll read it twice. Many Christians find it very difficult to avoid making dogmatic speculations about current events. Many Christians find it very difficult to avoid making dogmatic speculations about current events. Nowadays, you have about 10 books a year coming out saying, in one form or another, there's famine and plagues and distress and pandemics and earthquakes and hurricanes and wars. So this is it. Jesus is coming back right now. But this, there's both a historical and a biblical perspective that gets entirely ignored in this kind of discussion. Here it is. Here's your blank. Here's the historical and biblical perspective. Catastrophic events... Notice, both natural and man-made, catastrophic events have occurred nearly continuously since the fall of humanity. Think about this. In the Middle Ages, 300 million people died of the plague in a single pandemic. How in the world could that not have been the prelude to the end of the world? And how could Hitler not have been the Antichrist. He killed 6.2 million Jews. How could he not have been the Antichrist? So it's a fool's game to view each catastrophic event or each difficult era in history as an obvious sign of Christ's immediate return, that we know it's going to happen now. And I'd like to point something out. This isn't just indicative of an improper understanding of the last days it actually betrays something far worse than just having lousy eschatology. The concept actually reveals our usual attitude. Here's your blanks. Look at, the, look at our usual attitude. Rather than always being prepared for Christ's imminent return, rather than always being prepared for Christ's imminent return, some sign of the times has to happen to get our attention. Let's think about it this way. Many believers rarely think about Jesus coming back unless there's a tsunami or a massive earthquake or some huge event in the Middle East that involves Israel. And this further betrays the problem with our usual attitude. Here's your blanks. The problem with our usual attitude, it shows our routine lack of biblical expectancy for Christ's return. That's the real problem with our eschatology. We're supposed to expect that Christ could return every day, even if there aren't any special signs. This is one of the main points of the Olivet Discourse. Look with me at this passage. It's in your, it's in your notes. Look at this from Matthew 24. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 
Look what Jesus teaches here. He comes back on just a regular old workday. These people are just punching the clock. And that's why the scripture tells us that it's going to be just like a thief in the night when he shows up. People will be living as if the end will never come. And so we shouldn't need a sign to get us ready for Christ to return. It's going to be boom. And there he is, just as the lightning flashes across the sky, as Jesus said in the discourse. So the biblical understanding couldn't be any clearer. Jesus could come back today. No special sign needed. No special prophecy needed. Jesus is always imminent in his potential return. Reason number two, why people set dates. Reason number two, here's your blanks, because people easily fall prey to faulty biblical interpretation. So let's unpack some of these faulty interpretations. Here's faulty interpretation number one. Here's your blank. Misunderstanding the biblical concept of the last days. Here's what the Bible teaches explicitly. You ready for key concept number one? Here's what the Bible teaches. We've been living in the last days for nearly 2,000 years. That may be a key concept that's a mind blower to you, but look at this. We live in a day where an entire section of Christian bookstores is dedicated to telling us that we're living in the last days. And that, of course, is true. But this truth isn't unique to our time. Every generation since Christ's ascension have been living in the last days. Let me give us just three quick biblical references to this. They're all in your text here, so it's easy here. Look at from Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days, the Hebrews were written before 100 AD. And look at that. They're already in the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. From 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Notice, it was already happening. None of them ended up being Antichrist with a capital A, but there were Antichrists already appearing in the first century church. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And now look at the opening text from Revelation. The very first verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which, are you ready, must soon take place. And, sent, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, ready? For the time is near. The revelation was written in the last decade of the first century AD. And all the way back there, it was already near. The time, the coming was already near. And so the promise of the great and glorious appearing of Christ wasn't just for the final generation of Christians. We don't know which generation that will be. But it wasn't just for that generation, whenever it is. And this gives us key concept number two. Here it is. Write it in. The promise of Christ's return is to every generation. 
The promise of Christ's return is to every generation. And this is true whether Jesus ends up returning in their generation or not. Christ's return is always imminent. The great historic doctrine of the church. He can come back anytime. Faulty interpretation number two. Here's your blank. Spiritualizing texts that have an obvious common sense meaning. By the way, this isn't just dangerous with eschatology. It's dangerous anywhere in the world. Spiritualizing texts that have an obvious common sense meaning. Meaning, date setters inevitably must go beyond any plain reading of the text to unearth the hidden date of the Lord's return. Many of them assign biblical passages a spiritual meaning when the clear and obvious one doesn't suit their purposes. When they do this, they're actually renewing an error that was widely perpetrated in the Middle Ages. Here's your blanks. Look at this. An error that was widely perpetrated in the Middle Ages, assuming that the average believer can't properly understand Scripture. This error assumes that since average Joe isn't capable of unearthing these biblical secrets, the date setter feels called by God to provide that hidden message about when the end will take place <laughs> in our generation, of course, as long as you buy their book. Let me give an example. Turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, you're in Acts just uh, over to two or three books to the left. Look at, look at Mark chapter 5, and this is a, a, a for, for being in the Gospel, it's relatively, a relatively uh, uh, rarely talked about. It's kind of obscure, but look at this. Uh, verse 1, and they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Jesus, of course. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had even torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This is a badly demon-possessed man. Verse 5, And constantly day and night among the tombs and in the mountains he was crying out and gnashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do, you have to do, with, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Interesting testimony. I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. We'll see. <laughs> Talk about many demons he was possessed with. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, can you believe it? About 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, you thought this was a story. You thought this was a story primarily about two things. One, delivering a man from his demonic bondage, and two, that even the demons declare that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Well, 
That shows how little you know. Now, uh, I want to show you what a secret interpretation of this biblical passage is. I'm going to let you in on this secret. Point number one, ready? Write them in. Write in your blanks. This is really important because you can't see this. Point number one, the pigs drowning in the sea represents the rapture. That's right. Point number two, the pigs aren't actually pigs. Now, I know this is really hard to understand, but trust me, it's a special revelation from God. Here's the secret. Ready? Write it in. The pigs actually represent years. Excuse me, I'm trying to do this with a straight face. And you need to know something. The vast majority of biblical historians believe that Jesus was born around 2 BC, but actually, I'm absolutely positive that it was 7 BC. So that gives us point number three. Ready? Write it in. Jesus will return in minus 7, because it's 7 BC, plus 2,000 years, that's the 2,000 pigs, minus 1, because there's no zero year. You go from 1 BC to 1 AD. And that gives us that Jesus will return in 1994. This story, of course, of course, is no joke. This is exactly how Harold Camping came up with his prediction that the rapture would happen in September of 1994. Pathetic, isn't it? That was, in fact, the title of his book, 1994, question mark. Faulty interpretation number three. Here's your blank. Overstating the implications of biblical prophecy. When date setters are confronted with this biblical mandate against date setting, they have several typical responses based on biblical misinterpretation. They often begin in Matthew chapter 10. Look at this, it's in your text there. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, Jesus speaking. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Notice how it's really, really pouring this on. And I tell you in the darkness, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. An example of the misuse of this text comes from Pastor Marvin Byers, who taught that the rapture would occur in the year 2000. Notice how he twisted the clear meaning of this text. Listen to what he said. If we don't understand the last days, we lack an understanding of at least a third of the Bible. The Spirit desires to lead us into the truth, in this truth, in every detail, we will be, it will be revealed to someone. Remember, he's now saying, ooh, nothing will be concealed. Everything hidden will be shown. So he says, it'll be revealed in every detail to someone. God will do nothing without first sharing his secrets with his friends. This guy makes several errors that all date setters make. Here's your blanks. Error number one, failing to identify that God has already revealed his plan in Scripture in exactly the amount of detail that he sees fit. God has already told his plan to the prophets in his word and the prophets to us, and he chose to leave the date out. Adding any further revelation is an attempt to add to scripture, which of course is a really dangerous thing to do. Error number two, write it in. New revelations are inherently cultic. Listen to that. New revelations are inherently 
cultic. I don't have time to deal with it tonight. We'll do it in a future uh, session. New revelation doesn't happen. Progressive revelation of that which has already been revealed in Scripture can occur with interpreting in the face of what has happened in history. But new revelation is inherently cultic. This is how you get Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. So they, they say that the things like the Book of Mormon and the, and the Pearl of Great Price are new revelations. You'll see that there's actually commercials about that. But there is no new truth that can be added to Scripture. So let me give you an important definition. Here's your blanks. Here's the important definition. Prophecy is the teaching of God's Word as it is relevant to this time in history. Let me say that again. Prophecy is the teaching of God's Word as it is relevant to this time in history. True prophecy today reveals what God has placed in His written Word in a way that's understandable to people who live now, in our context, in our day, in our setting. So here's a key concept, write it in. All new revelation, all new revelation is false revelation. Why? Because new revelation is caught in a biblical catch-22. Think about this. If it's truly new, then it can't be based upon Scripture. But if it's not based upon Scripture, then we must reject it as false prophecy. No new revelation. It all has to be consistent with Scripture, which has already been revealed. If it's not, it's false. But not to be outmaneuvered, Harold Camping, remember the author of 1994, tried to get around this using Daniel chapter 12. Look at this. Here's your verses in your text. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will become, out, be the outcome of these events? Daniel's been told amazing things by this angel. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed. Look at this. Cleverly dealt with. We'll see here by camping. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. So, did camping find a loophole? God said that the book was closed until the end of time, and then it would be opened. But camping's problem was that he completely missed a pivotal text in Revelation. And I want you to see this. It's really important. It's actually in the last, uh, Revelation 22. It's actually the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Look with me at verse 8. Camping completely missed this. Remember when this is being written. Verse 8, And I, John, am the one who heard this and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, uh, like any good angel, <laughs> do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And in other words, don't bow down to me. We only bow down to God. And of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Verse 10, and he said to me, isn't this interesting? Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. This leads us to an incredibly important biblical principle. Here's your blanks. An important biblical principle. In the first century, right? This was written in the last decade by John of the first century on the island of Patmos. In the first century, 
the angel told the apostle that the book is already open. So look at what this means. At the time of the apostles, the book had already been unsealed for the last days. So there's no new revelation. The book is already open. It's been open for 2,000 years. The Lord isn't waiting for some clever guy to finally get it and publish and sell this hidden answer in some new earth-shattering book. God hasn't left two millennia of believers in the dark awaiting some new prophet to show up and give the final word. That's what cults do, not God. Error number three, here's your blanks, error number three, inferring from Scripture what it clearly does not teach. Here's an example of this error. Look with me from Amos chapter 3 at verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Listen to that again. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. So here's the twist that the date setters take. They point out that the word says that God does nothing unless he reveals it to his prophets. But there are two things wrong with their interpretation. First, when the Old Testament talks about a prophet, it has no intention of meaning some self-proclaimed voice of God on TV in the 21st century. That's not what they're talking about. The Old Testament prophets had an office that was established by God and confirmed by his people through the meticulous accountability in Israel. Now, you know, as well as I do, that Israel very often didn't like the prophets, and they less often liked what they had to say. But Israel knew who the real prophets were, even if they didn't like them and what they said. Trust me, camping is not a real prophet. And the second problem with this interpretation is a direct misuse of Amos' text itself. In this passage, if you have the time to read verses 1 through 15 as a whole passage, God reveals the future. He declares that an enemy is going to scatter Samaria, the northern kingdom, and from history we know that this is exactly what happened when Sargon of Assyria invaded Samaria and, and took over the northern tribes. But notice what God did and didn't reveal. Here's your blanks. What God did reveal, that Assyria would invade Israel. That's what God said, that Assyria would invade Israel. But what he did not reveal, very interesting, he did not reveal when Assyria would invade. So listen to the verse again from Amos 3. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Now notice the perfect parallel to the second coming. Make no mistake, the prophets are right. Jesus will come back, and it could be at any moment. And so anyone who stands before God's people, raised up by God's people to speak the word of God, that speaks that truth, is in fact speaking prophecy to the church. It is perfectly consistent with the historic understanding of what the word of God teaches, right? So, Christ is coming back. But what has God not revealed about Jesus' return in his prophets? Make no mistake, 
He has not revealed when it will happen, and he never will. Thus, the modern prophets are classic guilt, guilty of classic proof texting. And this is a perfect segue into faulty interpretation number four. Here's your blank. Failing to be attentive to the biblical context. Fail, failing to be attentive to the biblical context. A classic example of this is the teaching that Revelation 3.3 supposedly affirms that truly spiritual Christians will know when Christ will return. So you're in, just turn to the third chapter. You're already in chapter 22 of Revelation. Turn back to the third chapter and look with me at verse 3 of chapter 3. This has been misused over and over again. Ready? Verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, this is what they misuse right here. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Notice, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So one of the prophets, Marilyn Agee, she thought that the rapture would occur in 1998. Wrote a big book about it. A lot of people followed her. She gave the classic misinterpretation of this verse in her book, Listen to what she said in her book. What an astonishing statement, Revelation 3.3. Do you realize what this implies? Reread it and think about it over and over again. A secret is hidden there. If you do not watch, if you do not watch, we will not know when Christ will come upon us. But what will we know if we do watch? Startling, isn't it? Inherent in Jesus' declaration is the reverse. That, here's the misteaching, of course that if we do watch, we will know the hour when he comes upon us. Notice the misinterpretation of Revelation 3.3. Here's your blanks. Revelation 3.3. If we watch, we will know the time of his return. But now, let's look at the context. That's the faulty biblical interpretation that we're looking at right now, right? The not being attentive to context. Look with me at verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, so this is the letter to Sardis, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name and that you are alive, but, meaning physically alive, but you are dead. So write it in. Verse 1, they were spiritually dead. In other words, asleep, not paying attention, not being who they ought to be, unprepared, not ready. Now verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed. Ooh. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Here's what verse 2 tells us. Look at this. When Jesus says, here's your blanks, when Jesus says wake up, it has nothing to do with knowing the timing of his return. But rather, it's about obeying God. It's about completing God's acts for him. So given the context, wake up means to awaken from their spiritual slumber and to complete their deeds in the sight of God. In other words, to be relentlessly living in obedience to the word of God. And now we need to know how the ancient history of this city, Sardis, helps us understand what John meant 
writing this message to this particular church. This will surprise many of you. It's fascinating. This warning in Revelation 3 to Sardis carried special significance for the people of this city. Twice in Sardis's history, the city had been overrun by its enemies because the city's defenders had failed to be watchful. Write it in. Here it is. The watchman had failed Sardis twice in 549 B.C. when Persia overran them. And here's your next blank. In 216 B.C. when Greece overran them. In ancient times, this is really interesting. The element of surprise was essential to most military campaigns. Since the intended military targets didn't have surveillance aircraft, obviously, or satellites or radar to identify an approaching threat, the hope was that they could move large armies into attack position without the intended victims being aware that they were coming. And so the key element of defense was a group of soldiers who were continuously rotated into positions high on the city walls, looking in every direction and identifying the would-be attackers before, that was the key, before they could advance into position with a large army and get inside the city walls. In other words, in ancient cities, what we would call the early warning system nowadays were the watchmen. They were the early warning system, and they were expected to be ever vigilant so that even the unexpected enemy attack would be identified and the alarm could be sounded in time for the city to defend itself. And if an enemy attacked a city when the watchmen were distracted or asleep, then they had failed in their duty and often all was lost when that happened. So with this historical background, look again at Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour it is that I come upon you. And now, think about this scripture in the context of Sardis. It was not the watchman's, notice carefully, it was not the watchman's duty to predict the date of the enemy's arrival. In fact, there was no way he could. All he could do was watch. His job was to be constantly vigilant and then alert the city to prepare for an attack when he actually, ready, when he actually saw the enemy approach. So there are two ways for a watchman to fail. Here's failure number one. Write it in. Sounding the alarm, I'll read it twice, sounding the alarm when they anticipated an enemy's arrival but hadn't actually seen them. Failure number one, sounding the alarm when they anticipated an enemy's arrival but hadn't actually seen them. Now, some of you might look at this and say, hey, that's not a failure. We could think about this as like a drill, right? An enemy or a war drill. There's nothing wrong with sounding the alarm when it ends up not being the real thing. But there's a problem with this. It's what we call the crying wolf effect. We all know the story of the boy who was tending the sheep and repeatedly cried, wolf, wolf. And each time he did, the villagers came running out to defend the flocks. And then, finally, a day came when the wolf actually did come. And the boy was screaming and hollering, and no one paid attention, and the wolf had its day of devouring the sheep, while the village ignored the boy's cries. 
And this has a perfect parallel to today's end times prophets. In fact, look what happens to the credibility of the prophets when the date of Christ's predicted appearing comes and goes. And more importantly, look what happens to the credibility of the concept that Jesus will ever return. All of these prophets are crying wolf. And what happens to people when the watchmen keep crying wolf as they've done for centuries now over and over again? It gives us, ready, here's the problem of setting dates. The problem of setting dates. Here's your blanks. Eventually, no one believes that the wolf will ever come. There it is. So the first way for a watchman to fail is by sounding the alarm when they anticipated an enemy's arrival, but when they hadn't actually seen them. But there's another way for a watchman to fail. Failure number two. Here's your blanks. Being asleep when the day of battle arrived. This was the failure of Sardis. Both the Persians and the Greek armies caught them completely unaware because the watchmen were asleep. And John was warning Sardis. What had been true militarily in their history was now true spiritually in their lives. And so, the warning of Revelation 3 now rings down through the ages to you and me. Every one of us is commanded to watch for the Lord's coming by keeping spiritually alert. Every one of us is to be a watchman. And what's the role of a watchman? Not to try to predict the day, but to be alert whenever the day actually arrives. And so, the time for a watchman to be prepared and vigilant and awake and alert is today, this minute, right now, all the time. So what we've learned this evening is that there are two big errors for us to make related to Christ's return, each at the opposite end of a spectrum. Here's error number one. Here's your blank. Speculation. Error number one, speculation. Trying to predict when he'll return. So remember, no matter what theological gymnastics anyone tries, speculation about the timing of the rapture or the second coming is always, listen church, is always error. It's always error. And error number two, here's your blank, slumber. Spiritual slumber. But let me point something out. There's actually a third option. The option that's lived out in every wise person. It's the third option. Write it in. Here's your blanks. The biblical balance in between the two errors, alertness and readiness. Alertness and readiness. So for our text as we finish, let's look back at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 36. Look with me here at this amazing text and just let this soak in. Matthew 24, starting with verse 36. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Boom. Just like that. Isn't that amazing? Verse 41. 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Are we picking up on a biblical pattern here? But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, so listen to this, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. So let me ask you some questions as we close. How does the wise person live? They don't assume that they'll know when the day is coming. They don't assume that they'll have the insight to know when to get ready. They don't think to themselves that there will always be time to prepare someday. They don't assume that they can live their life any way they want to until some future time when all of a sudden they'll realize, oh, it's time to get my house in order. They don't say to themselves, the wise person doesn't say to themselves, I've got this covered. I'll live my own way for now, but I'll get things right when crunch time comes. This is the way of a fool. The wise person knows that every age, every day, indeed every moment, is the moment to be about the master's business. And this person, who will never be caught off guard, is always alert. But most importantly, this is the person who won't just be prepared themselves, but they'll also be useful for helping to prepare others for the coming day of the Lord. So as we end tonight, let me ask you two questions. First, are you ready? Are you alert? Are you prepared? Are you living for him? Are you focused on the coming of the Lord in every moment of your life? Are you consumed with being ready to see him face to face? Biblical expectancy, that's what that is. And number two, are you living in such a way that those around you who don't know Christ will awaken from their slumber? Is your life such a clear reflection of your single-minded devotion to the coming of the Lord that you're leading others to join in making the difference in this world? And if not, why aren't you doing that? 
Are the days not urgent? Are the days not evil? Is it not time to full court press, to be prepared and helping others prepare for his return? And tonight, what are you going to commit to change? A key question. Tonight, what are you going to commit to change so that when Jesus comes for his bride, he'll find you about his business, not yours?